We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McGeckron, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. This episode's guest grew up in the same town as me, Burlington, Massachusetts. John is a bit younger, so we did not know each other as kids, but we were definitely incubated, so to speak, in a similar manner and in a similar environment. While I went to engineering school, John went to art school and has been involved in metalsmithing and applied design all of his adult life. I am very excited to share my conversation with the owner of John Ray's Studios, John Ray's. So making the decision to go to art school at whatever, 17, 18, um, when did that start for you? Well, I'd always made art you know, in grade school, but I just, I never knew. It wasn't that I didn't know you could go to college for it. I just never considered it. I, it was never a thought. And so I didn't, I didn't understand that it was ever a professional um, path until probably my, my junior year. You know, one of my, my main art teachers, uh, Mr. Guadagno, Michael Guadagno, he really encouraged me to go to college for industrial design. And I think he said industrial design because I was taking a lot of sculpture classes and I was good at construction and modeling. And I think industrial design was something that, something where you could justify that to parents because it was sort of like, um, it seemed like it was a, it had a, um, an occupation attached to it. <laughs> sure. Um, and then so I said, yeah, sign me up. And then once I realized I could go to college for something I love to do, and then like my grades got better, and I just I just really buckled down, and everything kind of made sense to me. And um, and then it wasn't until I got to college where I was intending on majoring in industrial design or sculpture. And when I got to college, I I, I found welding classes, and I took glass blowing my first semester, and I just thought, no way, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to do fine arts uh, and figure out the rest later. Yeah. Okay. So Michael Guadagno, I didn't know he had a first name. Yeah. <laughs> um, I took him. I feel like I need to apologize to him at some point. I was such a bratty kid. I had him for design freshman year. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think about him all the time because he was a really great teacher and I was such a behavior problem. Me, but anyhow. I as well. I as well. And actually, um, I, I owe a lot to him. He he would give me detention all the time until I realized by senior year, like, cause I kept getting detention for the dumbest reasons. And I, then I realized, Oh, he's giving me detention because he believes in me and he wants me to, to do more artwork. Cause when you did, when you had detention, you just made art. And then I just started mm. showing up to detention senior year with, with that, when he wasn't giving me detention and I would just joke oh. to him. I'd say, I'm here for detention and he'd smile and I'd just make, I'd make art. Um, and that's when I got it, that he was, he was try, trying to isolate me uh, or so that, I wouldn't be distracted by other people and that I could make art. And it was fantastic. Um, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. He's, he was a, he's a real Jedi. So you get to art school. It sounds like there's a lot of directions you can go. Yeah. Sure. And you said, I think it was welding and, and sculpture. Can you tell me about like, what was it about that, that sort of activated you? Art in three dimensions has always sort of made sense to me. I, I never had to like, it was never a, a bridge I had to cross. It was, it was always right there. Um, but, but yeah, so I did took, I took a, I was able to take a glass blowing class my first year 
And that was because my, the guy teaching 3D design to me was also the head of the glass department. And so he liked me a lot and he got me into the glass one class. And so, and I just, I fell in love. I just love the physicality of it, the, the, the heating and the cooling and um, the, the, so the action and even the potential for danger and all that stuff, I think just wrapped up, was all just baked into the same, the same bread. And, um, it just, uh, I just loved it enough to where I had to stop. I stopped asking, um, the questions of myself about like, you know, what would I do for a living? What I just said, I'll just figure that out later. What do you call yourself? Do you call yourself a blacksmith? Yeah, I do, but but less and less now. I mean, I still am a blacksmith. I don't use the word as much in sort of mixed company because it just has so many uh, um, inaccurate attachments to it, whether it be sword making and horseshoeing or any of that, any of those things that just have nothing to do with what I do. So most of the time, if it's like in a new conversation, I'll say I'm a metal artist or a sculptor or, or designer. I'm a metal designer, and what I do is I um, I design objects metal objects and make metal objects that go into different situations so in other words i don't just make furniture i don't but i you know i also do lighting and i'll do some i do um some architectural work like railings and i do other things but what i'm more interested i'm most interested in is finding a really cool design idea that fits a situation so i don't think i don't think about furniture first i think about i, I think about an idea and then i I try to think if furniture is the best avenue to fit that idea. That's kind of what I do. Are your projects driven by like a client's need or are you creating something based on an idea that you have and then you work with clients to find a home for it? It's well, it's, it's both. And, I, and it's also evolved over the years. So when I first started, I had a, a small group of art collectors that, would would call me every few months and ask, oh, what are you making? And I would send them 35 millimeter slides of what I had just finished, and then they'd come over and buy it or not. And then that led to some commission commission work after that. But it was always commissions based on artwork I had made. And so I became it was sort of like uh, taking the business model of being like a visual brand. Although I wasn't, I wouldn't, I didn't use those words back then. I was just sort of growing organically so that the art, the, the fire screens I was making for commissions for people had a, visually had a lot to do with maybe um, a wall piece I'd made or something else. And so there was, there was a, there was a stylistic thread that went through everything as I grew. And as I developed different clientele, I became a little bit more of um, a contextualist. So like designing for, for a specific context and not, not for yep. my own visual style. Now I do both now. So it's, I, now it's just a matter of like knowing what I'm getting into. So if I'm approached, I, I'll get one example is that when that was a big, a big part of my career is that when, uh, in 2009, I think, yeah, I was approached by Yale university for their art museum, Yale university art gallery to make a railing for the main staircase of the art museum. And it was for their permanent collection, the part of a big museum expansion they were doing. And that through a lot of discussion and consultations and design, it became apparent that what I really needed to do was make something that fit the architectural style of the building, but that had 
some fingerprints of my of myself in it. You know, it was I was making I was I was making a Yale railing designed by John Ray's. I wasn't making a John Ray's railing at Yale. That was a big pivot point in my career where I started realizing the rewards of 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 working within a context like that. That sounds like that would be a big adjustment. I know personally most of my artwork is based on concepts and ideas that come from me or that I'm inspired by. Occasionally I'll have to do a commission. Mm-hmm which is based on a subject matter that someone else has given to me. And that's a bit of a shift and it's a bit of an adjustment. It, it's a, it's a shift in adjustment for me. And it's not, it's not always a shift in adjustment that I find um, that I don't always want it. And I think I always want to do both for that reason. There are certain projects where I get, yep. you know, so I, I don't mind going back and forth, but I always, so in other words, if I'd spend too, if I spend too many months in a row making, doing like architectural commissions, I, I, I start getting antsy to make speculative work more and more. And then I look for more opportunities and time in my life to do that. And so I go back and forth a lot um, yep. because I always need to have that voice too, of, of just making what you want to see and then presenting that and, um, hoping there's a, a, few, a place for that, that thing you made that's not in your own home. <laughs> Let's talk about the work that comes from inside your head and inspired from yourself, not the commission work. Mm. Can you tell me about how you get that out into the world? Yes. Yeah. If I could walk through the process in a, in a sort of very generalized way, I'll get an idea, and the ideas can come from lots of different places, but it, it could just be like a bird flies by, or so, anything just happens that's like a little diff, that just disrupts your brain while you're thinking about something else. And then that causes a daydream of an object, of, of a, or either a, a part of a sculpture or the whole thing. And then I think about how I would build it, I think about what it would be. And then if I can't get that thought out of my head, it, it becomes where I have to build it. And then once I decide to make it, I have to think of, then I have to think about what is it going to be? Is it going to be a piece of furniture? Is it, or is it going to be non-functional? Or is it going to be lighting or whatever? And I think that there are, there are reasons to make, to, make, to make the idea of furniture as opposed to not. You know, for example, furniture can be very intimate. It's sort of like figurative art that's about the body. It's like the negative space around the body, and so I feel like it's this—it's um, the—it's the upside down world of figurative art. So hmm, to speak. interesting. I never uh, thought of it that way. Yeah, that's always how I viewed it. I just feel like it's—it speaks about the human, the proportions of the human body, and how it, how the body interacts with it. And there's something very disarming about furniture because it's this like sort of doma style object that um, is more intimate, and so you can you can use that as a vehicle to. That, that intimacy as a disarming way to like to like s- smuggle your ideas into people's in pe- into people's minds you know through through furniture um, but it doesn't always have to be that way so sometimes I feel like something doesn't an idea doesn't shouldn't have the distraction of being furniture and so that's usually the place where I decide like is furniture going to distract from the idea or is it going to be the vehicle for the idea and that's kind of what I try to balance I love making furniture too but um, if, if the idea will suffer for being furniture, I don't do it. But there's always a seed. Something happens that initiates this whole process. 
Yeah, there's a creative seed, and that can be completely random and often is the case, but usually it has something to do with what I have just made before or what had just happened in the studio. Sometimes there'll be an element of an architectural commission. Oftentimes this happens, actually. There'll be like a small element of an architectural a commission, a surface or a texture or a thing that sticks with me, and then I find a way for that to become into a more speculative piece, like an aspect of the architectural work to become into the to, into a... A, a speculative piece, a piece that would go into a gallery, because they, you know, they do they do speak a similar language. They just it's they don't use all the same words. When you describe that process of you know a bird flying by and it causing like a disruption, it reminded me of crystal growth because crystals grow from like an imperfection mm -hmm. and it grows out, and that's exactly where my little crazy brain went. Oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure, um, yeah, and I think it takes um, it takes practice of sort of living in that space to where you're willing to, to where you're um, naturally accepting that kind of inspiration because your life can shut down those thoughts very easily. If you just stay too focused on what you're doing and what you're doing has nothing to do with inspiration. So it's a matter of like reminding yourself to or training your brain to, to, to accept uh, these weird little vignettes and thoughts that pop in your head or someone walks by and you've something about their coat ruffling in the wind or whatever that is. And you think, Oh, that could that something about there is furniture. What I just saw, or something about that is a sculpture. So, how do people purchase your work that's already created? Do they have to buy it through a gallery, or do they buy it directly through you? Both. Now that's changing a bit now because I have a gallery in Philadelphia, and so they're starting to sell sell some work. It's called the Gravers Lane Gallery, and uh, they're in Chestnut Hill section of Philadelphia. And uh, so I had a solo show there. Actually, the opening was like June 1st. It was like in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> so it wasn't, an, it wasn't an actual opening. We had sort of like a closing ceremony. And then things started selling. Like they, they, things didn't sell like on the opening day. And it started like some things started moving afterward throughout the summer. You know, now that I have this, this gallery, I'm, I'm going to try to get one more gallery. Um, I don't know where yet, but it's something I'm starting to think about now. I, I want to I try to find another, another relationship as well. Growing up in it with, with parents who naturally just made a lot of things, uh, you know, my dad was always, always worked with his hands for a living and also just for around the house. And so when you grew up with that as an example, it wasn't something that was taught to me. It was just taught by example. Uh, so he was actually creating things around the in the house as opposed to repairing stuff. Like he was... Well, both really. But, you know, he made a lot of playground equipment, for example, when we were young. And he would get like he'd go to like a wood mill and get a big timber and make a giant seesaw. And he'd make he'd take like metal tubing for at work and weld it together for the the fulcrum of it. And we'd get half of the neighborhood on this seat this uh, the seesaw or teeter totter the thing where yeah where you get on side it, it's just a it rocks back and forth. And he made playground equipment and we made you know we when we needed a new deck he built the deck and um, helped build build additions on the house and. When I wanted a like a go kart, he built it at work out of steel and used like a, a steering column to a car and made like the sort of rack and pinion steering on this go kart and just things like that. It, you know, was something where certainly the, that's where I learned the value of making things and the and the possibility that you actually can yeah. because watching someone as a kid watching the process of something being created like that. 
that kind of wires your brain in a way that, you know, I think most kids are watching their dad maybe do repairs around the house. That's different from, mm-hmm. from having a vision of something that isn't in the world, pulling materials together and creating something new that's now in the world. Like seeing that as a kid, that is pretty impactful. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's sort of like, a, what I, you know, what I learned from my dad was simply the value of building things and the ability to do it. And then I already had an imagination that was where I was predisposed for some kind of creative pursuit, whether I did that for a living or not would have, would have been up to question. And so I just married the built, the love and ability of building with my hands with fine art. Well, John, this was, this was wonderful. I really enjoyed talking to you and like learning about your creative process. That, that was great. Yeah. I love, I love how this is sort of a full circle with a sort of a Burlington origin. That's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I got a lot of it. Thanks for having me. No problem. Where can people take a look at your work and see what you're all about? My website, uh, it's, it's called John Ray Studios, J-O-H-N. R-A-I-S Studios, S-T-U-D-I-O-S. And then I'm also on Instagram on, you know, at John Ray Studios as well. That's where a lot of the stuff, the day-to-day operations you'll see, like, you know, whatever doesn't make it onto the website, we'll we'll get on there. We'll be on there first. Um, All right. Well, perfect. Well, thank you again, John. Thank you. It was good talking to you. My name is Ricky McGeckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast.